go. Episode six of Facing the Crowd podcast. Today we've been talking to none other than Blaze Bailey, former singer of Iron Maiden, current singer of his solo work and also Wolfsbane. How are you doing today? Really, really good. I've yeah. actually had a weekend off. Have you? Um, we are recording our new album in the oh. home studio. Yeah. We've made a few adjustments and we're getting great results. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really good. But it, it, it's more relaxed in one way because there's no travel. Sure. And there's nobody else. It's just Chris and me producing the album and right. doing everything between us. Um, so that's good. But the other the other side of it is it is long hours and intense. You can't just say, oh, well, we'll just do eight hours today. So, well, these are the tasks that we have to complete today. Yeah. And it can be 8 p.m. or it can be 10 p.m. or it can be three in the morning. Well, yeah. you've got to be done because you have things to do the next day, you know, and mm. you never know what thing is going to be a hiccup or be the fly in the ointment. You'll find something and then go, you know what? I don't really like the way this goes anymore. I think this is in the wrong place. Oh, yeah. no, there we go. Got to change everything around. So, so um, you know, it's or sometimes I go, actually, I don't think that's the best lyric. And then I've got to scratch my head and find the thing. But really, it's going absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. uh, I've been able to take the weekend off uh, and it's felt really good coming back to it. Uh So is that that's your own um, recording studio? Is it you've you've got one? Yeah, everybody can do it now. You know, when I started in Wolfsbane, you had to have a million pounds worth of equipment and a building and two blokes to uh, work the machines, one to work the desk, one to work the, the two-inch tape machines, yeah. and, and your producer. So that it was, a, it was a different world back then. Of and, it, yeah. you know, the, the best thing you could have is a four-track on cassette or your dictaphone. Yeah. And as things have changed, you know, with computers, they could never, they could never keep up. They would never have done it before. But no. now... It has got to that place where computers and processing power can actually handle music and video. You can get fantastic results with a little bit of gear and your laptop. So, you know, going back to like the early days, it would have been all supposed all analog tape and cutting the tape, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I've made those albums with the analog tape and cutting Mm. up the tape and everything. And for a singer in my style, I would never, ever go back to tape, man. When no. I did my first recording, digital recording, using the Pro Tools, and yeah. you don't have to wait for the no. tape to rewind. And those few seconds that you can go immediately, especially if you're doing a more emotional part, yeah. you're trying to find a particular kind of of texture in the voice you can stay in that place and get that texture whereas if you're sitting there on on tape as it used to be it's okay go again ready okay it's like and the moment's gone 
So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's much better. As well as that, you don't lose anything. You know, you no, have three right. or four goes. You're not compromising any tracks. You no. know, in the old days, you'd have 24 tracks. You'd work out what's on each track. And you'd have different instruments because I came in at different times. It was a different, the engineer and the producer then had a skill themselves that was important. Now you go, yeah, one track for that, one track for that, one track. And you can have, uh, you can have 30, 40, 50, 60 tracks with one thing on it. And when it comes to mixing, it's so much clearer. Yeah. So much easier, you know, less juggling. It's, it's great really. So, in that way, I think for artists who are starting off and coming through now, it, you have to learn to record yourself well. It's yeah. just like learning to play the guitar well mm-hmm. or learning to play the drums or learning to sing well. You've got to get up to a certain standard. Yeah. And it's absolutely possible to do it that way and you can get those results and i think what we're going to see in the next five years is some bands do incredibly interesting and creative things as they get to grips with the medium you know in the studio yeah. uh, and yeah. what you can actually do well there's mm. a lot of people there's been you know current artists and that have become megastars out of making uh, yeah. albums in bedrooms, in bedrooms yeah. they, you know. Didn't the streets, yeah. they yeah. made an album the, uh, in, his, in his bedroom? Yeah, it was, I think, yeah, the streets like, did, yeah. The Arctic Monkeys did, album. Yeah, it's crazy, it's crazy. But, yeah. it, you know, it brings up artists that never would have been, maybe. Yeah. Never, never would have got noticed. Now, 100%. if anyone's talented, they can do it. So it's, it's, it's yeah. yeah, I think it's good. It's, it's, you know, I think of the old system as a slave system mm. because they... The record company owned that recording. They owned it. So you could never release that version of that recording on your own. And there were quite a few bands who made their first album and that just stayed on a shelf in a vault or in a warehouse and it never came out. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, the album's still out there, isn't there? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the hopes and dreams of young artists starting off and your album doesn't even come out you've got no say about it i mean you can imagine how bad must it be that mm. george michael a multimillionaire, felt so aggrieved that the record company owned his songs he's re- owned his recordings that he took them to court to try and get yeah. out of it you know but that was the old system you don't have to do that now. No, it's easier you don't have to. to own your own music, isn't it? You know. Yeah. One band that springs to mind who did it the right way, you know, obviously they didn't towards the end, but I mean, obviously Nirvana, you know, when they they laid out with their record company and they said, right, we we'll sign with you, but we can release whatever we want, however we want it, and and yeah. that's, that's the deal, you know. And uh, but I suppose not not many bands have ever been in a position to be able to lay down those kind of demands. No, in one of the great things about Maiden early on they had this battle with the label yeah I mean they had many many battles with the label uh over being just (laughs) over being themselves you know yeah and it was and it's well we're not releasing that album because we're not releasing we're not releasing the artwork and all of that and you know Maiden were able to say 
well, you that will mean you're breaking a contract. You owe us a lot of money. We can go somewhere else. And we've still got these songs. And, and they won that battle. Yeah. And then another battle they had was, well, we don't like the sound of the album. Um, and it was because they'd come to the studio and they weren't hearing a final mixed album. Like me, as a musician and artist, there are certain things that are still in my head. And there yeah. are certain things where you go, well, when it's mixed, it's not going to sound this way. So I'll compartmentalize that and go, right, those drums aren't mixed. What I'm listening to is this bass guitar. And they came into the studio. Uh, and um, this is a story direct from Steve Harris. I don't think he'll mind me saying at all. And they said, oh, we can't have the album sounding like that. <laughs> and so there's uproar. Another battle ensues. And the the uh, the thing that happened after that is right. The record company are banned from coming to the studio ever. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was it. And then the, so it was right. We will deliver an album with artwork. You put it out. We won't tell you what to do with that, and you don't tell us what to do. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was it, man. I mean, it was touch and go at the beginning. Mm. There. And they had to really, you know, dig in and win those battles because the people at that record company had not got the vision of what heavy metal and rock is, no. who we are as fans, why we love this music. And um, I, I, I think, you know, the many battles and sadly, many battles like that were lost. Yeah. And people were forced to compromise. and you know, crippled artistically. Yeah, really. so made an the following to uh, to pull that battle off, isn't mm. it? Well, and yeah, they they just they battled that. They got great management, and uh, and they they were a team, and the management represented the band, and never tried to make the band compromise. And yeah. if you look at the really that like um, people like you two, it's and Led Zeppelin. It's the same with them. The management was always fighting for the artist yeah. and the artist's vision. And yeah. that's, that's where we get these incredible records and great music from, when that vision is protected, I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely, 100%. Yeah. Um, Blaze, so going right back to the beginning, um, yeah. what we want to know, well, basically what our podcast is about is yeah. – uh, predominantly like first gigs you got you went to and and things like that so what we were wondering was what was the first show you went to and did, was it from like from then you thought this is what I want to do no no not at all you know um I think I can't remember the, the I think the first one was, was quite late coming to heavy metal really but the I, I think one of the uh, very first shows was Diamond Head. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and I didn't like it at all, to be honest. That, <laughs> that was, that was, you know, fair. I know the lads are lovely lads. I've met several times. We've done gigs together, but um, you know that that wasn't inspirational at all. So, mm. but that was a Birmingham Odeon, and every artist on tour. It was in the golden days of metal and rock yeah. and roll where 
all the bands would play these venues that from 500 to 3,000, and they were all, all over the UK. You could do a UK tour that was 30 shows long. You know, Iron Maiden, Motorhead, all of those people. That was your UK tour. Go everywhere in the UK and fill it. And, um, you know, I was lucky that everybody came to Birmingham Odeon, Aussie, Man of War, Maiden I saw three times, Metallica with Anthrax, mm. uh, Bon Jovi in Birmingham Odeon. You can't even imagine it, it you know. He yeah. wouldn't even drive past Birmingham Odeon today. <laughs> it, 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 it's unreal. And uh, all of these things. And the, the real turning point in my life was going to see Ronnie James Dio. And it was the Holy Diver tour. And he played Children of the Sea, which is one of the songs from his time with Black Sabbath. Yeah. And... That was an epiphany for me. I'd never heard anything like that. I'd never seen anything like that. The tone that he had uh, and just something about that struck me and connected in my heart. Yeah. And I went to work that night because I was working as a, as a night porter, night reception guy at the hotel. Yeah. And uh, there I was. My main job was like cleaning Hoover in the hotel, setting up rooms for the next day and things like these conferences. And um, I just thought, what am I going to be doing with the rest of my life? Am I going to be am I going to be here pushing this Hoover around this hotel at night? Or if I wanted to do anything, what would I do if I could do anything? And I, and I thought, well. If I could do anything, I'd be like Ronnie James Dio. I'd yeah. be in a band singing and tour the world. Yeah. And did the you, next thing was, well, I, I thought, well, why can't I do that? Yeah. What can, what's to stop me? There's nobody that's saying there's a law against becoming a heavy metal singer. No. So that was it. And it was, it was from that gig and that moment that I really thought about being in a band. I was always interested in singing. And at that hotel, there was a baby grand piano in the small ballroom. Mm. And it was never locked. And I often plinked away on that. And I, I wrote my very first songs using that piano and my, um, like a little tape recorder. Mm. But that the thing that made me want to be in a band and pursue metal and that kind of music was that one night James Dio yeah. sing Children of the Sea, Birmingham yeah. Odeon. It's I think we all have these moments whenever you come to metal, whenever you come to this kind of music, it's a, such a narrow path that we have with bass, drums electric guitar and, and keyboard and a few voices it's a very narrow path to tread but when we find that artist that does hits all the buttons for us emotionally that's it it's over you're hooked you can never go back you can never yeah. not be metal after that yeah. i think <laughs> we, we talk about on episode one it, it was just myself and hobo on episode one we talk about all about first moments of metal and yeah 
the delight of it. Yeah, mm. it's good to know. No, that he's you know, like yours, Theo. <laughs> like, I'm, at, uh, I'm a young man and I've decided that I want to be a heavy metal singer and I go to see Man of War and I think, it, I can't remember if it's their first or second tour mm. of the UK. I think it's a How to England tour. And uh, they're at Birmingham Odeon. They're small. They can only have the bottom half open. You know, it's about half full. They yeah. play an absolute blinder. Ferocious. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. The intensity that they had. And they did a sign-in after the gig. You queued yeah. up outside. They put a table there, as many people did in those days. Yeah. And I got my ticket there. And uh, I got to sign. And I said to Eric Adams, a singer, I, I said, I'm starting out as a singer. I said, is there any advice you could give me? He said, well, breathe with your diaphragm like a baby. That's how you breathe when babies are born. This is how they breathe. And that's what, you know, somebody told me. And that's that's what I do. Mm. And, um, and, of course, off I go and... You know, years and years later, there I am at um, the Italian Monsters of Rock. Forget what it's called now. And uh, and Man of War are headlining. And they're in the catering, having the dinner. And I know what it's like. I said, I don't want to disturb you. I just want to tell you that I saw you in Birmingham Odeon on this tour. And he goes, and he, and he wow, that's years and years ago. And you know what they did? I, I, it was the days when we used to take our CDs with us. They yeah. signed all my CDs in the dressing room, all my Man of War CDs. Yeah. And they gave me the pass, the Man of War World Tour pass. And while they were on stage, I was the only person, I was there next to the monitor engineer watching Man of War on stage. I was on stage with Man of War. That's amazing. I was on stage with him, watching Eric from the side. And every so often, the monitor guy, you know, he checks the channel, he puts it through a wedge that he's got at the side there. And you hear soloed Eric Adams or Joey DeMay, and you get fucking perfect. Perfect. Oh, that was, that was, a, that was such a moment for me. And what made it even better was my ex-manager, crap, lazy fool, right, was ushered from the stage. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't be here. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, this is just perfect. It's his absolute revenge and poetry <laughs> that there I was, you know, warriors, warriors of the world. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, I'm here. Oh man, that was just that, such, <laughs> that was a, a metal moment of life. And it's not my gig. It's I played that day, and um, it was just it was just a fantastic, fantastic metal moment. You know, one of those things you've got a beginning and and something comes full circle. And I met uh, Joey DeMeo a few years later, and he he said, "Oh, how you doing, Blaze?" I thought, "What? Has he recognised me?" And um, <laughs> I said, oh, I'm doing all right. He said, what are you doing? I'm doing a gig over. I said, I'm doing a gig tonight. And he goes, uh, take the roof off that place, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so really. A bit of inspiration from him. Yeah. So, so yeah. We've got, Man of War's not everybody's cup of tea, but I have to be a lifelong fan. <laughs> I can't not after, you know, 
those the, those moments. And it's the same with Ronnie James Dio. You know, I was so, so lucky. People say, never meet your heroes. Mm. And I think that's right, but it's if. It should be never meet your heroes if. And one of the things is, never meet your heroes if you're blind, drunk, mumbling and staggering and abusive. Right. So, yeah, that's one thing. Because, oh, he was right. Well, look at you, of course. And the other thing is you don't know what kind of day people are having. That's... You know, they could have had they could have had the most terrible news or they could be horribly homesick. Haven't spoke to the family for ages. You just don't know. Obviously, there's an element of people that are just arseholes. Yes, that's yeah. true. But yeah. there's also people that if you catch them at the wrong moment, like you catch anybody, it's you, you, it's not good. But I was very lucky. I was making the first Wolf Spain album in Los Angeles at Sound City, and um, Ima and Ivana did uh, like a documentary film about it. Mm. But of course, he didn't mention Wolf Spain being there. Mm. because uh, we weren't popular at all in Sound City because I had a couple of uh, incidents there. And uh, I think the receptionist mentions us at the end in one of the interviews. Right, but right. anyway, I, I will meet anybody. You know what I mean? I don't have nerves about meeting anybody. No. You know, we were in the Rainbow and we met, um, we met the, all the guys from uh, Motorhead and we met, or, you know, the guys from Def Leppard. And I would just go up to anybody and say hello. Mm. Uh, and then we're in the rehearsal, which is just across the car park from the studio. And uh, the Wolfsbane guy said, uh, oh, Ronnie James Dio's over there. Why don't you go and say hello to him? I goes, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, it was like Jesus Christ almighty yeah. being there. You know, it was like, oh, I can't go. Anyway. I went over to make a cup of coffee and he come out the studio and I said, oh, do you want some coffee? Like, and uh, we got chatting and he was such a lovely, lovely bloke. Mm. And he was uh, producing a demo for somebody at that in the studio at that time. And I met him several times over the years, him and his wife, Wendy. And uh, whenever he played in Birmingham, I'd go backstage and, uh, say hello. Uh, uh, and it was it just like, incredible. I was so lucky to have that experience that I was able to actually meet him. And he was a lovely, lovely bloke, you know. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. We, we was actually backstage at Download once. Not backstage as in got a stage pass, but in the area. Yeah. And Steve Harris, obviously, you know, was standing there with his daughter, probably about... I don't know, five or six metres away from us. Yeah. I was sitting there, like, stoned, and I was like, should we go and speak to him? <laughs> and I was like, no, there's just no way on earth I'm going to. And I just sat, <laughs> just sat there and carried on drinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think just didn't go near thing. him, but I could just watch him. He was, like, literally yeah. 10 metres away. <laughs> well, I was at, the, uh, at the, uh, one of the maiden downloads, and uh, um, Bruce, bless him, He's, he's always been absolutely lovely to me. He's a wonderful person. And, and he's always supported me in everything I've done before and after Iron Maiden mm. and during. Um, and uh, I was there 
and he's put a hat on and he's snuck out so he could come and talk to his wife and he's looking round to make sure nobody catches it and he did he he managed to do it and and I just go Bruce Bruce and he goes oh all right ladies oh don't let anybody recognise me you know but uh, it's uh, I think it's in those big gigs what happens is you invite family and friends so it's important you want to see them yeah. But it's difficult because there's so many interruptions. Everybody wants to see you. So it's difficult to get that time with family and friends. And it, that's where I think you can catch people at the wrong time. Yeah. Like you were saying, Steve was talking to his daughter. It can be anything. I remember Bob Catley from Magnum. He'd been away for months and months and months. He hadn't seen his family for months and months and months. And people were going, fans were being really horrible to him saying all his ignorance and nasty and all of this he hadn't seen his wife for almost a year no that's right you know and it's like well you know what do you want what do you want from me i'm human too you know so yeah i think the wrong time but that's one of the things if you're drunk or high whatever mm. please don't meet your don't meet your idol no <laughs> No, that's right. Um, I've actually met you a couple of times, Blaze. You probably wouldn't remember. <laughs> what was I? Was I drunk? No, you, I don't think you were. But um, I mean, this is going back so far. But um, do you remember playing Bloodstock in in two thousand three? Where was it? Uh, was it inside? Yeah, the inside one. Yeah, yeah, I remember it clearly. Yeah. For me, that's. I mean, I love the I love the Bloodstock festival, the whole vibe <laughs> of it, but. I was so sorry when it moved outdoors because was, I loved it in Derby Assembly Room. Yeah, it was great. I absolutely loved it there, man. It, oh, oh, it was just great being inside, milling around with them. Oh, I just loved it. And the guys said to me, they said, uh, we're thinking about taking it outside. What do you think? Because I was like, oh, no, don't. I love it here. Mm. But, but they did. Not my yeah. best gig, but uh, it was a great festival. It was a wonderful weekend, that was. Well, I enjoyed it, mate. I enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, so... I was I was actually playing. I was on. Um, I, I, I used to be in a band called Bates Motel. I think. Oh we, yeah, I know it. Yeah, I remember. We played with you a couple of times. You yeah, played. Yeah, yeah. I've got your demo somewhere. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so I did. So, so I'll, you know, I'll find that. I'll burn it. You know. <laughs> but yeah, I, all I remember is um, obviously. I mean, that was one of the biggest crowds we'd ever played to. You know. Yeah. Um, I remember coming off stage, and the first person I saw was you. And you came, I mean, you're such a lovely guy, but you come straight up to us and you were shaking all our hands. And I've always told people this. I've never, ever met anyone with a stronger hand grip. And you grabbed my hand, <laughs> you grabbed my hand and I, remembers. I literally <laughs> fell to my knees. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, shortly then, after, or it might have been before that, you played in South End, which is our hometown, which is where we're calling. From where now. was that? Um, South End, it's called Chinneries. Yeah, I know where South End is. Yeah. Which venue? We played a couple of different ones. Oh, okay. Well, it was called Chinneries. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's still there. The, but... the old one was Pink Toothbrush, was it? The very yeah, old one. Yeah, that's and years ago. We've done that with Wolfsbane. Yeah. So, yeah, that night at Chinneries, we supported you then as well. So, I've met yeah. you a couple of times. And you've, been, you've always been such a lovely guy to chat to. So, that's, you know, when we started doing our podcast, I was, straight away I was like, we've got to get Blaze on. So, I'm so no, pleased to have you here. <laughs> sure I've got some stories. <laughs> Going back to your um, the night porter job you had, yeah. 
Um, I read somewhere that you used to listen to a lot of Iron Maiden during that time on your tape player. Yeah, well, everybody, you know. If someone had said to you then, one day you'll be singing for them, how, how, how would that have made you feel? I don't know. You know, I, I never even thought of that because I'd seen <laughs> three tours of Maiden at yeah. Birmingham Odeon. And just Bruce is incredible, man. He's, he's a god of heavy metal. You know, he's one mm. of the... He's not one of the minor deities, but he is a god of heavy metal. And also, he is one of the most important vocalists in music. Not just heavy metal, but mm. in music. He is one of the most important vocalists for what he's done, the things that, that he's done, the sound of his voice, the things that he's sung, the yeah. emotion that he's put in. You know, it, uh, that it, if you look at vocalists that have changed things significantly, um, you you look at people, you'll go, well, Robert Plant, Ronnie James Day, obviously Elvis Presley, and people of this ilk. I put Bruce Dickinson right there, you mm. know, with that, within the, with the voices that you go, well, it is the sound that has changed so much. I say, I think, and I, I put him before Rob Halford, really, mm. because of, of the partly because of the uh, the accessibility and, and the, the softness that he can do as yeah. well. So if you'd have said to me back then, oh, you know, you would, you could take the place of Bruce Dickinson, or you would, you know be selected for the vacant job i would never have believed it never <laughs> i would have wanted it and of yeah. course there is the arrogance of youth that i probably would have thought i could handle it which of course i would never would have been able to at that at that stage but uh, yeah i don't think i would have ever believed it in there it was and it's the old-fashioned five watt cassette player with one little speaker and you see 90s 45 minutes aside Mm. with a uh, number of the beast and peace of mind that I would have through the night and just turn the tape over to the next one. And the same with Back in Black and yeah. um, Highway to Hell, you know, just turn the tape over. And all of those albums and all of Van Halen and uh, Rainbow, Black Sabbath, all of those things, loads of White Snake. just I could, if I got an album, you know, while I was cleaning... And doing everything, I could get through that album three yeah. or four or five times. So I really got into it, you know, and I started to find out which things I liked pretty quick. Yeah. So I bet so you What? I bet you were pushing that Hoover belting out the tunes as well. I was actually, yeah. yeah. I used to sing because the Hoover was in a kind of a drone of I, I think it was like a low D drone <laughs> like that. And I would start, I would sing to myself just to try and get away from the sound of the Hoover because there was no, there was no personal stereo then. There was no right. little headphones or anything like that. Mm. You know, there was no iPod or any of that luxury that people have today. It was just that. Uh, oh. So we used to sing. I used to practice my singing and humming. And, you know, when I had my, um, I'd been to see a vocal coach, then I'd do the exercises while I was hearing the 
da, 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 and all, all of that. So that was it. And I, you know, my at the dinner time and everything, I was on my own. So I would just have a very quick dinner and I would write lyrics and uh, try and work on songs. And of course, I was, I mean, incredibly lucky. We had a fantastic music page in the Tamworth Herald. Mm. And uh, uh, on the music page was a little thing, heavy metal singer required, no experience necessary. Uh, that's me. And, uh, and that was Wolfsbane. And it was Jeff and Jace who were at school together mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, I went along. And I'd never sung in front of anybody before, you know, yeah. and screamed. Uh, I thought what was the sound of Ronnie James Dio like him, it, but it actually was like, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, nobody, I was lucky again, nobody else applied. I was the only one. <laughs> so, uh, so I managed to get it. And, uh, and that was the start really of, of Wolfsbane was, was doing that. So, of course, as things went on, originally I was going to be a hotel manager and go from the night job to train to be a hotel manager. Mm. But I'd started having this dream of being a singer. And then um, we started doing our little gigs and stuff like that. And we were a bit glam at the time. And I remember coming to work one night. I used to start my shift at 11 p.m. And uh, the manager going, are you wearing makeup? <laughs> no, I'm just tired. <laughs> Our next question was actually going to be, what was the first ever live gig you played? Was was that with Wolfsbane then? Yeah, yeah. It was a weekend. And one, we were just on with a bunch of bands in Litchfield, a uh, bunch of new bands. And the second one, we were at Tamworth Arts Centre headlining. And uh, we had a big picture in the paper and it sold out. That first, first proper headline gig, that sold out, that did. And we wrote a song about it. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Hately came up with the idea and we finished, we, we did it all together. And um, it's on one of the new Wolfsbane albums. I think it's on Wolfsbane Saves the World. It's mm. called Smoke and Red Light. And it's exactly what? about a starting. So if you've got that tune, it's really, really, it's exactly what happened to us at the time. Oh, fantastic. I mean, you're, you're, you're still touring with those guys when all this madness? Yeah, it's just difficult because yeah. everybody's grown up, everybody's got family, everybody's yeah. got different jobs and commitments. It's difficult to get together, but during the lockdown, a few messages were sent and we've got a few ideas. And cool. Jeff and Jace have got some great music. Steve's got uh, amazing um, drum kit for the home, you know, the digital drum kit that he's using. Mm. And I'm sending off ideas and bits and pieces. So we're hoping to have another Wolfsbane album. There's a certain chemistry when the four of us get together that it just sounds like us. Fantastic. So, and you got back together in 2010, didn't you? Yeah, it, it's something we all really, really enjoy. But it, it's just not always possible to get together. No, no, no. Like you say, families, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, or just work as well. I, I, I never anticipated that I'd be this busy with my solo career, but so, by some fluke, I've become really popular. Well, mate, they're great records, so, you know. Oh, thank you Why, shouldn't you, be? why shouldn't you be? <laughs> and yeah. You're um, booked in next year to play... Um... 
Undead Festival in the UK, aren't you, Blake? Yeah. yeah. To play a gig? What? Yeah, Hammerfest, Call of the yeah. Wild, and Stone Dead Fest in yeah, the UK. Things, things have um, been postponed, and okay. it should be a busy year next year for mm. life. You know, so it's I'm excited about that. Sort of um, rock UK fests are coming. Quite a few of them now, isn't there? And you know, good little lineups as well. Mm, mm. Some of those, it's pretty, pretty good. So they obviously rescheduled from this year. So yeah, I hope, uh, you, I hope you get to do them, Blaze. Uh, yeah. Me too. I, I hope that um, that whatever the new normal is, which mm. I don't really want. I want the old normal. Yeah, exactly. But, I think uh, the old. <laughs> yeah, whatever the new normal is, I, I just hope that's it. We can all go. We can go ahead with this and get back to live music yeah yeah um, what could be good i know there are some clashes but i think a lot of people have got tickets already they've already spent the money so they might be able to go to more things next year so yeah. i'm hoping for everybody it's going to be a good year for live music yeah yeah i think you know it's especially uh more than anything i suppose the outdoor stuff's more likely to be going ahead but um yeah, yeah. We'll wait and see won't we i suppose no one really knows what's going to happen so <laughs> yeah we've got a couple of things rescheduled haven't we yeah but, um yeah we, we hope they go ahead yeah but everyone's been saying on the podcast how desperate they are to get back playing or get mm. back watching gigs and do you really miss playing live or do you prefer uh, just working in the studio i think i've i've been lucky really because i've been so busy the last few years and we did three albums in three years with three tours and then a fourth tour. Was that the trilogy? With, yeah, my trilogy, a fourth mm. tour to go with that. That was very, very intense. And I, I think I, I've got back home and, you know, things have gradually... Burfest was the last thing that I did in mm. London. That was It was a sold-out show, fantastic reaction, absolutely awesome gig and that was the last thing i think i think that was one of the last live shows by anybody mm. in uh, in europe yeah and, uh, it, it was a wonderful and i it's not i don't miss shows so much because i'm used to having breaks between shows but i do miss my fans yeah because at every blaze bailey gig there's always a free meet and greet mm. and i meet my fans and sign for everybody and have photos of everybody uh, and there's no that's just included there's no extra cost for that that's just something i choose to do not everybody can do that but i choose to do it. it's a priority for me so i do miss meeting my fans mm. so what i've done is i've been able to set up some things where i actually phone them and some fans have been able to set up times through my uh, Facebook and I, I can actually phone them at home, mm, so, mm. which has been really fun. Oh, that's that's, great. that's kept me going, that has it? It, it. That's been really fun, okay. but actually phoning my fans. But, you know, it's good in one way because... <laughs> Every gig that got postponed, you feel like, oh no, we're not. And then, well, hang on, we've gained another three days there. Yeah. You don't have to travel there. There's no performance. There's no recovery. That's three more days towards the album mm. or 
planning the album or, or yeah. you know, writing the lyrics. And so it's tragic that we've lost all of these shows, but we've gained all of this time towards our album where yeah. we would have been anyway. We're supposed to be recording and writing and finishing our album. Mm -hmm. And we've got this luxury of the extra time. And it's really helped us mm, the mm. album. So uh, I feel fairly confident that it's going to be a good record yeah. you know, when it's done. And luckily, a lot of the things, they're not cancelled, they're rescheduled. So, yeah, so I'm true. lucky with that, really. Yeah. So you get, can you give us any titles or album titles? Well, <clears throat> I can, what, what I can say is, is just what I've told people on the phone if mm. you've got my silicon messiah album and bloody yep. belief a man who would not die then there's that there's that kind of element mm -hmm. three songs about scientists and one song is about 303 squadron the polish squadron in the second world war that was so important during the Battle of Britain, they served alongside, well, they were in the RAF. Mm. So, uh, uh, and I wanted to do a tribute to them and I've wanted to do to do that for a very long time. Mm. So, uh, so that's something that we've been working on, but I can't really tell you much more than that. No, no it's fair enough. I know these things are kept under wraps. Yeah. It is. <laughs> so, and I keep changing my mind. Right. <laughs> I, keep, I keep changing my mind. Chris will come and he'll go, what's happened to that one? And I'll go, oh, well, we've still, we've still got the song, but I've changed the title now. And it'll, it'll keep going like that. So, yeah. so I don't actually know what the, finished, what the finished titles will be. I've got a fairly good idea now. But yeah. nearly all the titles have changed two or three times. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, knowing from my experience, you know, sometimes... When we're writing a song, it's got a name, and then you know when you finish writing it, the name just doesn't fit, or it just needs something else, and you just yeah, end yeah, up yeah. changing titles. You had a working title like the James Bond one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's like, well, it's got nothing to do with James Bond, but one but part reminded it. you yeah. of the James Bond theme, so you've called yeah. it the James Bond one. Yeah. <laughs> but it's easy for the band to remember it, like. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And we, <coughs> when you're writing. We give things stupid names, but you well, you know from your own experience with writing that you'll have a riff and then you'll have another piece and mm. you'll go, Well, what's this? Well, this is riff one or riff two. But you mm. still, you can't remember it from that. So you've got to go, This is James Bond and this is Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> okay. And so the conversations that we'll have. Now, uh right, so are we, we're going from James Bond to Jimi Hendrix. Where's Eric Clapton? <laughs> and where's where's Eric Clapton gone? Well, Eric Clapton's there now after the chorus. Okay. <laughs> so where's Eddie Van Halen? Eddie Van Halen's not in this song. What are you talking about? What about the instrumental? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, where's Mad Max gone? Where's Mad Max? We talk about Mad Max. We never had Mad Max in this song. That was last year. We haven't even used that. I was like, you sure? I'm sure we had Mad Max here. <laughs> it so, must be fun writing with you guys. <laughs> I don't it's think track it's... Track one, track two, and yeah, track three, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it's fun. I, I think I have a lot more fun than the other guys because I'm really nasty and cruel. 
<laughs> <laughs> and I think for them, it's more endurance and putting up with it. You know, right. so okay. oh, here we are again. Because I, I've, I've been criticised for it in a pattern, very direct when I'm writing and in these uh, and rehearsals, because I, I think, well, it's pointless wasting time going around the houses and trying to put things apart. Uh, it, it's just like, I don't want that. I want this. Do mm. it like this. And that's it. So that's how it goes. I listen to everybody's suggestion. Mm. We do things together. But I, I make a decision. I'm the producer alongside Chris. You know, we have our part, different parts that we do. And I go, no, that's got to be that. That tells the story. Yeah. That is, we're constantly looking to find what is the emotion and the music and the lyric and the emotion. If you can get those three together and yeah. all of the same with the melody, then that is the gold that we're looking for with every single song whether it be aggressive or melancholy every single one to get those three things together you can't always do it and no. just well that was that's the best that we could do with that one and yeah. on the odd occasions where you can do it it comes together is just fantastic yeah totally. just such a good feeling so uh, my colleague Perks here, he's got a very specific question about one of the songs that you, um, you yeah, helped write. Yeah, I want to rewind a bit, um, Blaze, to yeah. Man on the Edge that you wrote with Yannick. Yeah. And obviously inspired by the film Falling Down, which is such a classic film, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking when we was going to be doing Blaze, I was thinking about the frustrations of Michael Douglas's character in that film. And I think... Do you think that in, even in 2020 now, it's like more relevant the way people are feeling with the way the system is and things going on? That it's it's so relevant that film, and obviously writing a song about it, the song's obviously so relevant too. What do you think about that? Yeah. Those. Well, part of the reason that it appealed to me so much, and I really identified with that character, is when I was at school and I had a paper round, then I got the sack from that paper round. But I still got up at seven o'clock every morning and went out the house because I was so scared of the reaction of my stepfather at that time. Mm. So I, I, I went out the house. I was scared to tell my mom that I'd got the sack from that paper round. And there was Michael Douglas and you find out that he's going to work every day to a job that he hasn't got. He's mm. pretending to go to work, but it's even worse for him because that the sense of shame and disappointment, it's at the core of his personality that there he, there he is responsible for the defence of a nation doing these incredibly complex things. And then he's just unnecessary and uh, so i really um i really liked that film and i identified because of that i know it sounds dumb losing my paper around and being scared to say that i'd lost it mm. i identified with that and that you know that that's the scene where the gun goes off for the first time in the fast food place i don't know if you've been in that situation, but I had certainly been in the situation where I go, 
I would like the breakfast. I, I'd like the, uh, <laughs> the sausage. I'd like the sausage and egg. No, you can, I said, I can see it there. Oh, I'm sorry, it's after 11 o'clock. Like, I've been in there. And so when he's there and that gun goes off and he gets the sausage and egg, I, I, it's kind of an anti-hero thing. But I'm going, yeah. yeah, yes, yes, he's got it. Yeah, right yeah. then. That's how you get your bloody egg muffin after 11 o'clock. Sometimes stuff like that can make or break a day, can't it, Blaze? Yeah. <laughs> that's what it's about, and, wasn't it? You know, and, you know, as well as that, I'm, I'm a much more mellow character now, you know, after, after you know, all the things I've been through and survived and experienced. But, you know, I can identify with that person and how he handled that. I was in that place once i think most of us have been there mm. in that place where you know that these things it will just seem like the unfairness of life is particularly directed at you yeah and that, that's what at, captures so well yeah. doesn't the film and you capture you guys capture it in, in that song mm. so well yeah it, it's uh you know i still have days where everything goes wrong and i just have to go uh, you, know, you know the days where you wish you could start again I still have those days Yeah. you know we all do but I, look, I'm very very lucky you know with what I've been through I've got a, a strategy okay right it's not life and death so it's not life and death mm. and, and you know I, I try and live now live now enjoy now make the most of small things celebrate small things have a plan there's your future you might get there and if you've got a plan you've got good things that will happen but mm. don't count on getting there don't live for the future live now and uh, that's no. my philosophy over the years that's i've come to that philosophy and that's yeah. what kept me going and it's a philosophy of low expectation which some people don't agree with or think he's stupid or, or whatever. But you know what? The unhappiest people expect everything to go great every day. And the happiest people are the ones that don't expect good, don't expect bad. But when good things happen, appreciate it. And mm. when bad things happen, just get on with it. And that's what I try and do, really. Um, I think that's what, up and down for me with music and <laughs> with my life and I, I just try and do that right good no matter how small you know no matter how small it is or insignificant to somebody else if that is a good thing that's happened celebrate it Make yeah. it, look something really good happened you know so uh, that's what I try and do and and I think that that just that just gets me through mm. no it's a good outlook to have on life mate uh, yeah, what's what's the um what's in your head? What is the best gig you've ever played with with any any of the projects you've been involved with? Uh, I, I mean, best is it's variable, isn't it? Because best is so many different things in that 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 could be best. I played Monsters of Rock in São Paulo, seventy thousand people with a huge stage set and 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 everything. Mm. Uh, so 
that was the big, that was the biggest thing I'd ever done to that time. Incredible experience. <laughs> I played in Chile, and Maiden had been banned for 20 years by the church. Mm. Metallica had been there. Bon Jovi had been there. Every major band had been there except Maiden. Mm. And I was the first. I was the singer in Maiden when Maiden went there for the first time. And I can tell you that when those lights went down, the sound of the Chilean fans after 20 years of waiting was unreal. And I looked around at everybody else and like, I mean, these incredibly experienced men, Steve, Dave, Yannick, Nico, incredibly experienced. And everybody was looking at each other wide eyed their hairs mm. off on the back of your neck. <sighs> the support band lasted two songs and they were bottled off okay. because oh. nobody was prepared to wait any longer to see Iron Maiden. Oh, and, uh, Who was the support band? The, the two manager came up into the into the dressing room. 40 minutes, normal warm-up time. Yeah, okay, right, so I'm all wrong. Yeah, all of that. Back in 10 minutes. I said, well, happened to 40 minutes. I said, the support band's off. The singer's been bottled up. The singer's got his head cut. I thought, oh, my word. That's just incredible, man. That was, that was an incredible, incredible concert. But, but that was incredible. But going way back with Wolf Spain, we played the Palace Theatre in uh, Tamworth, the converted cinema. And as the set went on, people get, get they got closer to the stage and then they were on the stage, and by the end, we were actually, as the band, we had our backs pressed to the wall as we as we were level with the fans on the stage. It was just it was a stage occupation. It was incredible. I never felt anything like that, you know. So it's wow. very difficult. I'm I'm so lucky in my career that I've had some incredible moments. But I, I think Every wonderful, incredible moment is nothing without fans. Fans are heavy metal. Fans make this music come to life. They are the beating heart of what heavy metal is. And uh, it's my great honour and privilege and pleasure to say thank you to all of those fans that have supported me through the years and made it possible for me to to live my dream living the dream it's impossible for somebody to come from nothing working a job as you know a minimum wage job in a hotel with no qualifications dyslexic failed everything at school to get from there to the top job in the world at my profession. It's impossible, mm. but I did it. And I'm you so really lucky did. to have had that and still be living my dream. Yeah. I'm still a full-time professional musician. I'm actually the producer now. I produce my own records. It's my own label, tiny, but that's it. I'm completely independent and I'm supported by fans. And it's incredible to think of that journey and to be supported by people uh, they go no i love what you do i've had tough times and 
your record got me through it. I don't have the ego to think that only my record could get you through tough times. But it is very humbling when the record that you happen to be playing, that happens to be in your car or on your CD player or on your iPad, is mine. And you face that storm, you face the darkness and you get through. And I am the soundtrack. And you feel that I've helped you through that. It's an incredible feeling and it's very, very humbling. And it's, I'm very lucky to have that. Like, there's not many jobs where at the end of your day, you finish work and someone comes up and goes, I love what you just did. I love what you do. What job? Do you get that? My job, that's the one. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible, incredibly lucky. It really is. Okay. It, it really is it's so privileged like to be years in that now. situation. You, you've been sort of playing live gigs for, for about 36 years now, haven't you, Blaze? Which is yeah, that's it. Yeah, 1984. Full live career and recording career. Yeah, I've worked with top producers in the world of music. Top producers, you know, million platinum selling producers. Top people in in some of the world's top studios. I've recorded at Abbey Road as well, made a record there. So, yeah, top places, top people, a vast amount of experience in all in all the, the, the things that I do. But outside of music, I have no qualifications whatsoever. I'm a minimum wage worker. So if it's not, if, in music, that's it. I'm living this incredible dream. Uh, uh, that, but outside of music, I'm just... I'm exactly the same as any other person. I work a minimum wage. When I'm broke, I have to go to per temps, say, right, what jobs have you got? And work in a factory and do that for minimum wage, just the same as anybody else. So mm. I'm incredibly privileged to uh, to be able to do what I do. Blaze, you're a humble guy. You're a lovely guy. We've absolutely loved having you on the show today. Well, thanks. Uh, hopefully right. next time I'll come on, I'll do the video. That'll be fantastic. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> okay, we, then. Well, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> Sorry, Blaze. If we could just put it out there and ask you just one last question. Yeah. What is your favourite band of all time? Ah. <laughs> Who is it? Because it's on the list and I've got to ask it. Yeah, it's, just before you go. It, it's... It's so difficult, isn't it? It's a tricky one. It is really tricky to tie you to one because, you know, like Ronnie James Dio is my favourite vocalist, but he's been in three different bands. Yeah. Or four different bands, hasn't he? He's been in a, a lot of different bands. And uh, Robert Plant is one of my favourite vocalists as well. But I couldn't say that Led Zeppelin's my favourite band. Mm. You know, so it, it, it's it's a, a, a very difficult, um, a very difficult question. But if I if I had to be tied down to one, Here it is. I would say it was ACDC. Oh, good choice. Yeah, it, it's it's a toss up because, because it's the early years and it, it's very difficult to choose between them and White State because I absolutely adore David Coverdale's voice. Um, yeah, we saw White Snake last year at Download. Yeah, Kicks. especially in the analogue era. You listen back to those things. Oh, man. Ain't gonna cry no more. It's just, oh. Um, 
But yeah, Bon Scott is an influence on me and my vocal style because his vocals and his singing were very much a conversation. And I didn't want to sound like Bon Scott, but I did want to be able to have my voice be as simple and half talking to get the idea over of what you're talking about. You know, when when he's when Bon Scott is singing diamonds and us, oh man, dies, rich members, Lambadinas, caviar, and all of this. You really are thinking there is a man who's just like had a big win and he's celebrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can feel it. You can feel the things that that he says. You know, he, he's like talking to you, and I think that that's why. And as well, Angus, what he's done over the years musically, he, he's always given me that guitar sound, and he's always given me those solos. I don't like every single song by ACDC. But the majority of what they have done is something I could live with. You know, if, if I had to, if you were saying, right, you can only have one band to listen to for the rest of your life, I'd be, well, I've got to have that one, really. Mm, mm. Well, there it is. There it Thanks, is. Blaze. You've been so good. Yeah. So entertaining. It's been, it's been our absolute it's pleasure. Such an insight. So thanks. Thanks, mate. Well done. Well, well, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on and good luck with your podcast. Thank uh, you. See you later, Cheers, mate. Cheers, Have a good day. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.